As the demand for telemedicine grows, so does the need for connectivity. 5G meets that need. Qualcomm remains focused on giving doctors and patients superior, security-rich 5G connectivity. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash inventionage. Support for this podcast comes from Goldman Sachs. Through Launch with GS, a $500 million investment strategy grounded in the belief that teams with diverse leadership drive stronger returns, Goldman Sachs remains committed to facilitating connections and increasing access to capital for women, Black, Latinx, and other diverse entrepreneurs. Learn more at gs.com slash launch with GS. Existential risks aren't new to us. Ever since our species was born, there have always been lots of catastrophes ready and waiting to wipe the human race off the face of the earth. It's just that these risks aren't of our own making. The history of humanity is relatively brief, and we've been fortunate to have come along during a period of relative calm in Earth's history. Maybe we couldn't have come along had things been more tumultuous. Who knows? But there's something to bear in mind that pops up a lot when you look into existential threats. Whatever lessons the past may offer, it doesn't teach us enough about the future. Just because things have gone smoothly so far doesn't mean they will always go that way. Every so often, some massive catastrophe happens on Earth that brings life to the brink of extinction. There are a lot of things in space and on Earth that can devastate life. We call these natural existential risks. It's worth noting that we humans pose an existential threat to just about every other species that we share the planet with. But there are also natural catastrophes that pose a threat to all of us creatures living on Earth, including us humans. In this episode, we'll look at a few of them. To get a feel for just how badly things can go on Earth, let's travel back to one particular day during the Maastrichtian age of the Upper Cretaceous period, about 66 million years ago, give or take 300,000 years. And on this day, a light streaks across the sky above Earth. That light, it turns out, is an asteroid six miles across, about the size of downtown Los Angeles. It's traveling at about 44,000 miles per hour, 25 times faster than a bullet, when it passes through the Earth's atmosphere as if it's not even there and strikes the planet. The impact creates a blast with 100 million megatons of energy. For comparison, the Tsar Bomba, the largest nuclear bomb that humans have ever detonated, was 50 megatons. One got past Jupiter, you could say. The asteroid strikes the Earth along what is now called the Yucatan, the spur-like peninsula that juts out of southern Mexico into the Gulf. It drives itself into the Earth, digging out a crater 110 miles in diameter and nine miles deep. So deep, in fact, it nearly punctures a hole all the way through the crust. The impact is felt all over the world as enormous shocks of energy that travel along the borders between tectonic plates. This sets off earthquakes and volcanoes across Earth. Unimaginably large tsunamis from the Gulf of Mexico wash as far north as St. Louis. The impact kicks a tremendous amount of earth and sea into the air. Boulders the size of cars are launched hundreds of miles from the impact site, as far away as Belize. The pressure and heat from the collision is so great 
that it instantly melts the rocky earth below. That melted rock sprays into the air, where it turns to glass before it can reach the ground, continents away. Quartz is pressed into crazy angles, and minerals into tiny spheres of metal. And when the heavier bits among all that kicked up dirt and rock and metal come back down, it heats up. It brings a tremendous amount of energy with it, flash heating the Earth's surface and broiling alive anything that can't take cover underground or underwater. And as the earthquakes and tsunamis raging across the Earth and the fire raining from the sky begin to subside, things go from bad to worse. The finer particles from all that pulverized Earth and liquefied rock launched into space stay aloft, forming a vast globe-spanning shroud that blocks out the sun for months. Photosynthesis grinds to a halt back on Earth. The world's plants can no longer make their food. And since they, in one way or another, feed the rest of life on Earth, everything still alive begins to starve. But as bad as the asteroid makes things for life on Earth, it is made even worse by a fluke, a stroke of sheer bad luck. The Yucatan, the area where the asteroid strikes, is one of the most sulfur-rich areas on Earth. And when that asteroid hit, as much as 500 billion metric tons of sulfur instantly rose from deep inside the Earth, up into the atmosphere, like dust rising from a table when a heavy book is dropped on it. In the sky, that sulfur mixes with water vapor and is bombarded by ultraviolet radiation from the sun. So it becomes sulfur aerosol, the type of atmospheric pollution that just happens to be the most efficient at absorbing sunlight and blocking it from reaching the Earth. The sudden presence of aerosols in the sky makes the darkness complete. Sulfur aerosols also form acid rain, and freshwater lakes and the surface of the oceans are poisoned by it. Life on Earth comes disturbingly close to total extinction. Millions of years later, humans will call this cataclysmic event the Cretaceous-Tertiary Extinction. It had such a profoundly colossal effect on the planet that it serves as the sudden and abrupt dividing line between one geological age, the Cretaceous, and the one that followed it, the Tertiary, or Paleogene as it's called these days. Around 75% of the species alive on Earth at the time died during the event and the hard times that followed the asteroid's arrival. Three out of four, species. Death swept across Earth in waves that lasted for tens of thousands of years. Those species that did manage to survive had an extremely hard time of it. They hung on by a thread. In many cases, they were whittled down to just a few individuals that were somehow able to carry on their species. Animals that were able to burrow, to feed off the carcasses of the unlucky ones and whatever plants still reached upward toward a sun that no longer shone. Those are the ancestors of everything alive on Earth today. We are descended from the toughest band of animals that ever lived. But for most species of dinosaurs, the asteroid was the end of the line, the coup de grace. They succumbed to their existential threat. We know all of this thanks to a father-son science team known as Luis and Walter Alvarez. As a geologist working in Italy in the 70s, Walter Alvarez found a thin layer of clay dating back to around 65 million years before. It was peculiar because immediately below this strip of clay, there was a wide variety of fossils of different types of forums, tiny single-celled organisms that have shells. But right above the clay, there was only one type, 
Forums are an excellent indicator species. They eat plants and animals that degrade on the seafloor, and they are very sensitive to changes in the environment. If something happens to forums, it means that something happened to everything else. And something definitely did seem to have happened to the forums around the time that clay strip was deposited that drastically reduced their diversity. There was something similar among plants, too. Just below the clay strip were fossils of a wide variety of plants, where just above, there were only fern spores. Walter would have been surprised to know that the strip of clay he was scraping at with his trowel in the center of Italy was actually from Mexico. Walter had a very famous scientist dad, Luis, a physicist who developed the first atomic bombs for the U.S., among many other things. By the late 70s, when Walter approached his father with the curious find of the clay strip, Luis worked at one of the national labs, where he had some colleagues who ran a mass spectrometer. He asked them to take a look at the samples of the clay layer. What they found was surprising. The clay layer contained about 600 times more iridium than the layer above or below the clay. This is very weird because iridium, which is a metal in the platinum family, isn't found much in Earth's crust. It certainly isn't found at 600 times the background amount. It is, however, found in abundance on things like asteroids. As Walter started looking around the world, he found that same clay layer at other sites, and it had all the same characteristics as the first site in Italy, iridium and aces, an abrupt shift in diversity. By that time, paleontologists had already established that the dinosaurs had died out around 65 or so million years earlier. The clay layer's geological age matched that extinction precisely. But at the time, the prevailing theory was that it had been a million-year period of volcanic activity that had been responsible for killing off the dinosaurs, all that gas erupting and poisoning the air and rain. But what the Alvarez boys were seeing suggested an asteroid, a colossal one. One so colossal, it had brought the Earth to the brink of near-total extinction. And in 1991, their theory got a shot in the arm with the discovery of the Chicxulub crater on the Yucatan Peninsula, the site of the destruction 66 million years before. Eventually, the debate was laid to rest. In 2010, 41 scientists in fields like paleontology, astronomy, geology, and others released a review of the literature on the KT extinction and the asteroid evidence and concluded that it was in fact an asteroid that killed off the dinosaurs. It's as close as science comes to being settled. There's something that gets overshadowed by the story of the dinosaurs' extinction. That life on Earth rebounded. Those smaller animals that could burrow and dive held fast. And among all the darkness and death, they continued on. They reproduced and raised their young. And as the Earth slowly shook off that extraordinarily bad day, it became again a fertile place, a place friendly to life. And that bottleneck created by the asteroid opened wide and life spread again and grew diverse. And from that calamity, we humans arose amid the vacuum left by the sudden loss of life. The dinosaurs' existential catastrophe proved to be our existential triumph. Which is to say that life is tough and it is very, very difficult to extinguish it entirely. In the coming centuries, that will be a mark in its favor.
What would you say is most Americans' main fear, main hope at this moment? That was my dad, legendary interviewer David Frost, aged just 29 ahead of the 1968 election. He posed that question to every single candidate that year. He'd go on to record over 10,000 interviews in his life, and I've spent the last few years reviewing them, selecting the most powerful and relevant ones to share with you. I believe that this country is going to be saved by women and students. I happen to believe that. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. And in the process, I've got to spend hundreds of hours with my dad again, learning from him along the way. And talk to rather than interview, that's a key thing, because what I'm interested in this first special really is conversation, not an interview or an interrogation. Listen to the Frost Tapes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We humans are an earthbound species, and so whatever happens to Earth happens to us. Like the dinosaurs, we live under the threat of death from huge rocks traveling at unimaginable speeds hurtling toward us. But unlike the dinosaurs, we are in a position to do something about it. In the coming years, as our technology to travel through space develops, and we become capable of spreading out around our solar system and eventually our galaxy, we will have made the biggest shift in our species since at least when we settled down and began raising crops. That sea change in human ecology, the advent of agriculture, led to sweeping changes for humans. It was, as Nick Bostrom would put it, a pan-generational change in how humans lived. By coaxing food from the ground on a predictable schedule and by taming animals and creating a reliable supply of meat and milk, we changed a lot about ourselves, our bones, the shapes of our skulls, the workings of our guts, the color of our skin. And it changed our culture, too. As anthropologist Jared Diamond points out in his 1987 essay, The Worst Mistake in the History of the Human Race, about the advent of agriculture, we started to have a surplus of food, something that our hunter-gatherer ancestors never would have experienced. This meant that some people had more than others, which creates an imbalance in power, and hence agriculture also led to things like kings and armies and social classes. When we settled down, our cities developed. Agriculture can support more people than hunting and gathering, and the more people there are, the more brilliant ideas there are too. So our civilization began to advance by leaps and bounds in the last nine or 10,000 years. Ideas spread more quickly among those people who lived together in those new cities. So innovations were able to develop over the span of a handful of years, rather than millennia. Almost everything we have in the world today can be traced back to our collective decision to settle down and raise crops. It was, to say the least, a sweeping change for us humans. With our next great leap, spreading out into space, we are effectively doing the opposite of when we settled down into cities. Rather than contracting, we will be expanding. From that huge coming together, we will spread out. Over time, humans will begin to colonize other planets, and generations of little human babies will be born on planets other than Earth. They will be shaped by forces and experiences that no Earthbound human will have ever encountered, and they will learn to adapt to their home planet just like we did. We are quite capable of becoming all the things that it's possible to become. Life that starts from us and radiates out can not only spread to different places, it can create different styles and techniques and, and cultures and approaches. 
All of the life that you see on Earth started out from a much smaller amount of variation, but with time it could explore lots of different niches and ways of living. And that's probably what would happen to us too. If we're the only life around and we can survive, we will radiate, we will di become diverse and different and fill thousand, million, billion different uh, niches of different ways of being. Over time, perhaps their physical connection to humans on Earth will become distant enough that new species of humans will form, and the universe will be home to more than one species of human again, just as it was 50,000 years ago. We will become the aliens we seek. And later on, they might be surprised to learn that they came from something that was simple and not as varied. It's odd to think of, but humans are in an evolutionary bottleneck of our own right now. There's only one species of us, and with the exception of maybe half a dozen astronauts on the International Space Station at any given time, we are all stranded on this island Earth. Those astronauts aboard the ISS show just the faintest beginnings of our future. If we become a spacefaring species, all of humanity's eggs will no longer be in just the one basket of Earth. Should some catastrophe befall those of us here on Earth, there will be other humans living elsewhere to carry on. We will begin to trickle from our bottleneck and spread throughout the universe. And when we do, we will have made it through the Great Filter. Colonizing beyond Earth is something we should begin working on as soon as we can, because Earth is vulnerable to a wide variety of catastrophes that are pretty hostile to life. Things like exploding stars, the death of our sun, even Earth's own systems going haywire. Take our sun for starters. Remember that Goldilocks zone, that habitable area around a star where a planet can sustain life? Earth is in the sun's Goldilocks zone, but it's not a permanent position. As a star, the sun is currently in its main sequence. It has plenty of hydrogen atoms in its core that it fuses into helium, and these constant nuclear reactions release tremendous amounts of energy which we gratefully accept as light and heat here on Earth. But the sun is slowly using up its available fuel, and as it does, its core shrinks in size. That smaller core means that it's closer to the center of the sun, which means that gravity exerts more force on it, making it denser. All of this is what one would expect. But we're talking about cosmic stuff here, and as with all cosmic stuff, something weird always happens too. Because the core grows denser as it grows smaller, that means more fuel is closer at hand for the sun to burn. So its main sequence begins to speed up. It uses fuel more quickly, actually shortening its own lifespan, at least compared to what it would be if it managed to maintain a slow, steady burn during its entire life. As the sun burns through its fuel supply more quickly, it's actually going to grow larger, much, much larger. In about 1.1 billion years, the Earth will no longer be in the sun's Goldilocks zone. It will be a lot closer, and it will keep getting closer from there. This is astrophysicist Ian O'Neill. When it goes through this end stage, when it starts to turn into what's called a red giant, and it's pretty a red giant is pretty descriptive about what it's going to be, it will expand possibly out to the the orbit of Earth. So this the sun will basically fill up our entire um, our entire sky. You look out the window, it'll just be a big seething mess of of star. So you can imagine that with the sun right on top of Earth, there won't be much room for life. But billions of years before that point. The biggest issue we'll have to deal with is the increase in solar radiation. Sure, 
things will get much, much hotter on Earth than they are today. But as with the fallout from the KT asteroid, there are places that some life could go. Underground, deep underwater. Sorry cows, sorry elephants, sorry feral pigs, sure. But as we've seen, life is persistent, if anything. It would almost certainly find a way to adapt to the changes from the increased heat on Earth. At least at first. But the radiation from the growing sun will be so intense that it will tear apart the very molecules that make up Earth's atmosphere. All aerobic life, life that breathes oxygen, would die, obviously. But even anaerobic life would find it impossible to continue on Earth. Without an atmosphere to regulate temperatures, the wild swings between intense heat and cold on a daily basis would evaporate the oceans, leaving Earth a dead, lifeless rock. A planet without an atmosphere is a dead planet. So we have a billion years to figure out either how to slow the sun's burn rate and vastly extend its main sequence, or how to live away from Earth. And the odds aren't that bad, actually, that we may be able to do both within that time. That same issue, a star reaching the end of its productive life, poses another natural threat to Earth as well. Depending on the size or the type of the star, it could explode at the end of its life. As a star nears the end of its life and its fuel core becomes denser and denser, the force of gravity acts ever more strongly on it, in just the same way as the singularity of a black hole. But a black hole singularity is so massive and so dense that the force of gravity acting on it actually presses it into the fabric of space-time, creating a bottomless depression. Not all stars are as massive as this, though, so there are other outcomes that it can have than a black hole. And one of those is a supernova. Over the star's lifespan, the nuclear fusion reactions it carried out left behind as byproducts increasingly heavier elements. Hydrogen fused into helium, helium fused into oxygen, oxygen fused into neon, and so on, until the elements the star burned toward the end of its life become heavy metals, like iron and nickel. So eventually it will start to try and burn elements as big as, say, iron, and any star that starts to try to fuse iron is basically on its deathbed. The force that holds the nuclei of these types of atoms together is so strong that they can't be fused together, even by something like a star. But the force that gravity exerts on this extraordinarily dense core of iron and nickel is strong enough that it actually compresses the individual atoms, pushing them into tight, tiny balls. When the atoms that make up the core shrink, the core itself does as well becoming denser, and so the force of gravity acts even more strongly on it, creating a feedback loop. The star's core, in other words, suddenly collapses, and all of this happens in the fraction of a second. So it's this weird point where, as soon as you hit iron, almost immediately, within milliseconds, the star just falls apart. It just, the, the whole the system in its core breaks down, and it will undergo a core collapse. But since the star isn't massive enough to become a black hole, since one of the laws of physics is that matter cannot occupy the same space at the same time, there's a limit to how tightly packed the iron atoms at the star's core can become. When they reach that limit, the collapse suddenly stops, kind of like hitting a brick wall. All that force of the collapsing core has to go somewhere though, and it reverberates back outward, exploding in a supernova, one of the most fantastic displays in the universe. All of the mass that star sheds is shot outward as energy. So much, in fact, that planets that orbited the star just moments before 
may be blown out of their solar system into space, if they're not outright destroyed, that is. Tremendous amounts of light and heat are released. For a few minutes, the dying star can shine brighter than the combined luminosity of an entire galaxy. The explosion sends tremendous amounts of heat and radiation spewing into space, bathing anything nearby with it. The only explosion in our universe larger than a supernova was the Big Bang. Sometimes, if the supernova is large enough, it can emit a gamma ray burst. Gamma radiation is the most energetic type of radiation on the electromagnetic spectrum. Gamma rays are so energetic that they excite any atom they come in contact with, causing the atom to move temporarily to its higher energy state, causing it to release energy itself as it moves back to its normal ground state. It's like gamma rays get everybody else wound up, and to calm down, everyone has to let out a little shout. Just thinking about this happening to an individual atom sounds like chaos. So you can imagine what a burst big enough to flood an entire planet with gamma radiation might be like. Let's say for argument's sake that Earth just happens to be in the path of that beam of energy. A sudden flood of gamma radiation would burn those of us walking around on Earth's surface to a crisp. Sadly, we would probably not all be transformed into incredible hulks. The life that did manage to survive the initial burst would have a rough time of it afterward. Gamma radiation is particularly good at burning away the ozone layer, the protective blanket of O3 atoms that reflects most of the sun's radiation. When flooded with energetic gamma rays, those O3 molecules would destabilize, and the ozone layer would deteriorate, leaving Earth exposed to the full brunt of ultraviolet radiation from the sun. UV from the sun can be bad enough with a full ozone layer, Without it, it would be utterly catastrophic. The intensity of the UV would prove too much for even photosynthesis in plants. So, following the blueprints of the KT extinction, in a matter of days or weeks, the bottom of the food chain would collapse, and everything else above it would starve as a result. The oceans too would be crippled by the increase in UV. It would destroy the plankton that makes up the basis of the marine food webs. The effect would be pronounced enough that a gamma-ray burst is considered to be able to sterilize a planet close enough in its path. And it's possible that the Earth has experienced them before. One theory for the Ordovician extinction 440 million years ago is that Earth got in the way of a gamma-ray burst. As majestically dangerous as they are, gamma-ray bursts happen in the universe once a day. At least. Well, that's how often we notice them. Since the 1960s, I should say. Humans have been aware of supernova for thousands of years, first noting the appearance of bright new stars in China almost 2,000 years ago. But we spent the entire lifespan of our species up until the 1960s blissfully unaware that invisible death rays went off in our universe at all. It was all because of the Cold War that we ever found them. In 1963, the US, the USSR, and Great Britain signed a treaty banning nuclear detonations in the atmosphere, underwater, or in outer space. But we didn't precisely trust our comrades, and so the US launched a satellite capable of detecting large sudden spikes in nuclear radiation. And the satellite found it. But it wasn't from nuclear tests. That satellite provided the first evidence of gamma ray bursts. And since then we found that they are extremely common. Stars collapse all the time, it seems. The universe is full of rocks and collapsing stars and gamma ray bursts. 
which, by the way, can also form from two black holes merging, or from the hiccup of an exotic and frightening type of star called a magnetor, which is a type of dwarf star made of nickel that spins hundreds of times per second and produces the strongest magnetic fields in the universe. It's a dangerous place out there. I mean, the, the universe is, is, has got no care for life on Earth. And, uh, and I think that it's worth remembering that when you look up in the night sky, when it looks very you know, peaceful and static and, uh, and it doesn't look particularly dangerous. Being alive in the 21st century, you're probably fairly well-versed in the basics of climate change. We all are. And whether you believe humans contribute to it or not, it's plain to everyone that as advanced as we've become, we are still very much at the mercy of the Earth's climate. All of the bad news about climate change, though, it seems incremental. A few degrees increase in temperature here, a couple feet of sea level rise there. It just seems so, well, I hate to say it, but distant. Distant and sort of non-threatening. Now, there's a whole series I could do just on how those sentiments aren't correct at all, but enough doubt has been sown that it feels like we have the luxury of time to keep arguing about something as silly as whether humans are contributing to climate change or not. But whether you believe we do or not, and we definitely do, there's something you should know about climate change. Earth has a point of no return, climate-wise, and should we find that we've pushed it past that point, we would also find, to our great peril, that the change in climate would be neither distant nor non-threatening. With an overabundance of carbon dioxide, the atmosphere could become a blanket that traps heat from escaping into space, heating Earth up to an unbearable degree, literally. It's called a runaway greenhouse effect. If you were alive in the 90s, you were introduced to the greenhouse effect, a byproduct of climate change that can lead to global warming. The basics are that as we burn more fossil fuels, we contribute new large amounts of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere that wouldn't otherwise be there. They would still be locked underground as deposits of oil and gas. When sunlight shines on Earth, the planet absorbs some of it and is warmed by it. But it also re-emits some of it back into space as infrared heat. The trouble is, CO2 is an extremely efficient absorber of that infrared heat. When there's a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere, the atmosphere as a whole warms. So we end up with a warm planet and a warmer than normal atmosphere. Things become warmer all around. But when temperatures rise on Earth, the planet just releases more radiated heat. And so eventually temperatures cool again. It's as if Earth overwhelms the CO2 in the atmosphere with sheer multitudes of infrared. There's just not enough CO2 to trap it all. And the planet overcomes the greenhouse effect. Easy peasy. But there's a limit to how much heat Earth can release into space. And so once the planet reaches the point where it can emit no more infrared, as CO2 levels continue to rise, the tables can turn, and it can be the carbon dioxide that overwhelms Earth. A runaway greenhouse effect is triggered when a positive feedback loop arises. As the planet grows warmer, more water evaporates from the surface of the oceans. Water vapor is also particularly good at absorbing reflected heat and trapping it in the atmosphere. So the atmosphere grows even warmer, causing more of the oceans to evaporate, adding more water vapor to the atmosphere, trapping more escaping heat, warming the planet even more, and evaporating more of the oceans. Eventually, it reaches a point where the entire planet becomes so hot 
that the oceans boil off. You'll be relieved to hear that there is a point where the feedback loop is broken and the runaway greenhouse effect ends. But I regret to say that that doesn't happen until the atmospheric temperature reaches about 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, when the emitted heat moves to a wavelength that water vapor is incapable of absorbing. Long before that, we humans would have ceased to exist. And eventually, with the oceans boiled off, any life hanging on in the seas would meet the same fate as us. This is what astronomers believe happened to Venus. Venus is about the same size as Earth, but it's far closer to the Sun, and it's not within the Goldilocks zone. It's not the closest planet to the Sun, that distinction goes to Mercury, but it is the hottest planet in the entire solar system by far. Despite being almost 28 million miles further away from the Sun than Mercury is, Venus's average surface temperature of 864 degrees Fahrenheit is hundreds of degrees hotter than Mercury's. Hot enough to melt lead. That's because Venus has an atmosphere thick with CO2. On the surface of the planet, the atmospheric pressure is almost 100 times that of Earth's at sea level, about what you would experience 3,000 feet underwater in one of Earth's oceans. There's no surface water on Venus. That evaporated away eons ago. But at some point in its distant past, Venus may have been habitable. It is to our great fortune that natural existential risks seem to be rare. This is philosopher Toby Ord. Humanity has survived about 2,000 centuries uh, so far. So that's 2,000 centuries worth of natural risk. Asteroids, comets, supervolcanoes, supernovas, everything put together uh, that could have killed humanity. We've survived 2,000 centuries of that risk. Uh, and this this fact allows us to put a bound on how much risk these natural things could be causing. Uh, and if you do the mathematics on this, you can show uh, that it can't be much higher than about one in a thousand uh, chance of extinction per century from natural uh, causes. Which works out to a 0.001% chance of humanity going extinct from natural risks during any given year. A thousandth of a percent. Not too menacing. Most atmospheric models show that human-contributed CO2 definitely exacerbates the greenhouse effect, but that it would be extremely unlikely that we humans could push it into a runaway greenhouse. In their 1980 paper where they introduced the world to the concept of a dinosaur-killing asteroid, the Alvarezes and their colleagues calculated how frequently such a catastrophic event might take place. They concluded that an asteroid with that scope of devastation might come along once every 100 million years which would leave us with around 34 million years left on the clock before we can expect a similarly destructive asteroid with something approaching certainty. A gamma ray burst close enough to Earth to cause a mass extinction might happen once every billion years, and Earth would have to be lined up in the path of the relatively narrow beam of gamma radiation to experience the full effect. There are stars nearby that could collapse in supernova, but the closest, IK Pegasi A, isn't expected to for another five million years. The next two closest, Antares and Betelgeuse, could explode at any time in the next million years, but should be too far away to damage Earth. And again, the sun has more than a billion years before it reaches the end of its main sequence and begins to grow unbearably hot for us. But it pays to keep an open mind. It is entirely possible that our current understanding of these risks is flawed in some way, or incomplete, 
that there's some factor we're not aware of yet that could make any one of these disasters much more likely. In that slight liminal space of uncertainty is where existential risks live. The chances of them happening are minuscule, but the consequences they bring if they do are so catastrophic that they demand to be taken into account. Atmospheric scientists, for example, don't understand the extraordinarily complex interactions that make up Earth's atmosphere. And so maybe we could accidentally trigger a runaway greenhouse effect by burning fossil fuels. It's unlikely, but it's unlikely under our current understanding. And with the addition of information, that understanding can change. Human misunderstanding doesn't prevent calamity. In fact, it makes it likelier. But here's the thing about natural existential risks. Being earthbound, we can't do much about them right now. In the future, we will. Our artificial intelligence will be able to predict gamma ray bursts to give us plenty of warning. Our spacecraft will be able to ferry us around to safer planets. And maybe we'll build structures to capture the energy from those bursts and store it for later. But so long as we remain bound to Earth, we will be vulnerable to the same threats that it is. More so, really, Earth is likelier to bounce back from a cataclysmic asteroid or a gamma ray burst than we are. But there's an entirely different class of existential risks, ones that we have a much greater chance of controlling because they are of our own making, but also ones that pose significantly greater danger. These are anthropogenic existential risks. Anthropogenic risks, however, um, we can't apply such an argument to bound the probabilities and to show that they must be quite small. I would say that there's maybe something like a, there was something like a one percent uh, risk of extinction from anthropogenic causes in the 20th century. This century, I think it's it's growing. My best guess would be something like one in six Russian roulette. Uh, and then next century, well, if we don't get our act together, even higher. Those technologies that pose an anthropogenic risk to us, we're beginning to develop them right now. Some are already here, and almost no one is paying attention to the danger they are bringing our way. On the next episode of The End of the World with Josh Clark, it was a cold, windy day in January 1979 when the robots took their first human life. As we create more intelligent algorithms that are capable of improving themselves, we run the risk that they may take over their own development and quickly evolve beyond our control. There is no good outcome for us if that happens. 